0: This is Democracy on the Move. (music) Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, December 3, 2023, I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Kevin Howard drops by today to talk about his new book called Onward at Last. It's a book full of deeply insightful essays about life. I personally met Kevin a few weeks ago, and I'm working on a project with him. It didn't take me long to figure out that he's well-spoken, articulate, and ultimately in touch with his inner being. It's refreshing to work with such an individual because most people's lives seem to sort of careen out of control down the road of life, but Kevin maintains a steady grip on the wheel and moves ahead, guided by his sense of inner enlightenment. Kevin was born and raised in the Bronx. He describes his childhood as happy and fulfilling. After graduating from high school, he joined the U.S. Army as a member of NATO. After completing his tour in the Army, he went to Houston, Texas for college and then on to graduate school in the state of Connecticut. He began his career as a FEMA Disaster Assistance Loan Officer after the 1994 Northridge earthquake, and he went on to build a successful career as a business banker. By all accounts, he had arrived at the coveted middle-class life that many Americans aspire to. Yet having attained this goal, he began to ask himself why he wasn't happy. Physically, he felt as though he was on the path to having a stroke by the time he hit 40. Something was wrong. Something was missing. Something critical. As a lifelong learner, he pursued answers to what was missing in his life. It was a journey that taught him many lessons through many observations. The result was a book of essays that lays out some of the answers. In this book, Onward at Last, Kevin explores the root causes of American unhappiness in general and offers guidance on how to achieve personal and collective progress. What's the secret revealed in this book? Too many Americans have internalized the social values of independence, competition, and self-interest To such an extent that they don't notice how these values drive our choices our relationships and our overall outlook on life indeed while these values may fuel the engines of capitalism they are often a barrier to societal happiness and ecological stability now personally i feel this is important because politically speaking we live in a nation that's tearing itself apart the negative emotions of fear unhappiness jealousy rage and isolationism has given us all a collective schism where zero-sum games play out with individual people's lives in the balance. And many people suffer. Many people die. Kevin's book, Onward at Last, reminds readers of our universal oneness. We're not independent in our lonely lives, but we are interdependent. We need to learn how to depend on others to help us in our hour of need, and we need to learn how to depend on ourselves to be there for others in their hour of need. If we are to survive and prosper into an uncertain future, we need to shed our self-centered optic fed to us by societal conditioning and embrace our collective humanity. I find this philosophy not only spiritually satisfying, but really a moral imperative for all people to come to the realization that we are not alone. Instead, we are all one, and we must step away from the brink of self-destruction and learn to trust our brothers and sisters as we fall into their arms. So, Kevin, I hope I did justice with that introduction. Thank you for joining us on Democracy
1: on the Move. Dan, you did great. I was like, man, I like that guy. Who's that? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. No, you did great. Thank you so much. It's Good. such a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, you know, I've uh, I have to confess I haven't read the entire book because it is it is quite a uh, uh, quite a long book. Well, it's it has a lot of I wouldn't say it's so long. I'd say it has a lot of thought-provoking essays in it, and. It's not something you just kind of breeze through, and I was, <laughs> I was just reminded of you ever see Schitt's Creek, that, that TV series, yeah. and yes, so there's, yes. so there's Alexis Rose who plays the uh, the daughter, and she decides to go back to college, and she gets all these college books, and she's at home studying at her desk, you know, and she's got this highlighter, and she's like highlighting every single passage, and and and, and her brother walks by and says, "You're only supposed to highlight the important parts." She says, all the parts are important. So that's the way I feel with you. I have this electronic reader right here from Kindle, and I downloaded your book, and I have this highlighter in the book, and, 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 and I start highlighting things, and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm highlighting, I'm highlighting the entire book here. i got to pull back <laughs> a little bit. But uh, the fact is, you know, every every single passage, every sentence you say there is, is, I think, very profound. I mean, it's a lot of observations I've had in my own life, and it's uh, something that uh, you've really put it down on paper very well. So with all that in mind, uh, tell us a little bit more about your life. You know, when you realized you were heading for the rocks, and, and how did you discover that it was really societal influence and not your internal demons
1: that was taking you toward those rocky shores? Well, thank you for the question, Dan. Yeah, I, I'm very much your your typical American story. You know, my story particularly was I was raised by um, a first-generation immigrant to our country. She's, she became a naturalized citizen. She was born and raised in Panama and moved to the United States in a, as a 14-year-old. And uh, so she had an acute understanding of what America, the promise of what America was. And she instilled that in me and my brother, Ruben. Um, and so I grew up in the Bronx, and yeah, it was a very happy upbringing. Um, it wasn't, uh, it was, we were, my parents got divorced when I was five and my brother was seven, and my father moved away and literally did not hear from him again, uh, or, well, did not see him again. We'll get to, the, we might get to that, rest of that story. Um, and so just being raised by my mom, she instilled in us what a blessing it is to be born in America because of the opportunities you're going to get that you just don't get that she didn't have when she was in Cologne, Panama, you know, and um, and so I, I I took that to heart. I took that to heart. And, you know, she she gave us the the best, uh, you know, Catholic school education uh, available in the New York metropolitan area, graduated from Cardinal Spellman High School. And then, you know, I fell in love with my high school sweetheart. We got married at 18. I joined the military because I wanted to pay my way. I was so anxious to, to 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 stake my claim to the American dream. You know, so I went, wanted to serve my country and and get money for school because I wanted to earn my own way. And so I joined the United States Army um and uh you know got married, joined the United States Army, was stationed over in Germany, and and you know my life took off. And and again I was a deep believer, a total patriot, you know, and you know part of the military experience is is you're practicing for something that most of us hope we never have to do right. to, to kill or be killed, you know, for, for your country. And most of us are not natural killers. So if we are committing to to engage in that where we're deferring to someone else, the responsibility to make that choice for us, we have to be prepared to do it. And so I had to resolve myself as a young man under what circumstances would I kill or be killed. And, and it came down to, to protect the way of life that provided me everything that provided my mother everything every, you know you know every opportunity you know to protect that way of life and a lot of our fellow soldiers this is what they decide you know and then you go about your life you know so that's where I was that was my foundation. I believed in the American dream and I set off to my life So I completed my service and uh, went to college, went to graduate school you know and built this idyllic middle class, Life, you know, I had the benefit of quality education. I had, I was coming at a time where America was opening up, you know, in terms of this is the benefits of the civil rights movement, equal rights movement, all that stuff. You know, by the '90s, you know, th- there were were opportunities out there, um, and uh, to the extent that America was was a closed door, it was much more economic than it was, let's say, racial or gender, you know, or what have you. And so, therefore, I came in at a good time, and and so doing what, you know, measuring myself by the virtues that define me as an American, you know, I was exercising my freedom. How can I add value? How can I, how can I work towards financial independence for the sake of myself and my family, you know, um, pay for college education for my kids and on and on. And so as I was doing that, and, and going through the process of doing that, I came to a point, now I'm in my now I'm in my late 30s, approaching 40. And I know, isn't it an, uh, a cliche, you know, midlife crisis or whatever. Right. Yeah. But the reality of the situation was, was that I was in this big house and, and and I had the kids and I had the wife and I had the toys and I had money in the bank. But literally, it, literally, I was just like on the edge of, of some sort of finan- uh, like. A, like physical breakdown because i was working really hard that's a part of the american dream is that you work you have to work hard for success it doesn't just get handed to you so i was buying into all of that and i found that even though i was achieving that and experiencing that i didn't have any time to enjoy it Mm -hmm. I i wasn't enjoying it the only thing i was focusing on was the next mountain the next mountain and so i started asking myself what sense does this make I mean, I'm right. at the peak of my life and I'm still not enjoying it. I'm still not, you know, in fact, it all feels hollow. And, and so in that crisis moment, I asked myself, I said, you know what? I, you know, I have, I have to, I have to figure this out. I have built my life based on all the measuring sticks that my culture has given me for success. And I found it to be hollow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why? And, and when I started looking in, and it was a 12 year journey, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't do the, the, the midlife crisis and, you know, take out the garbage and, and never turn around. <laughs> no, I, I upheld my responsibilities, I continued what I was doing. But I went inside to say, why is this not working for me? Why is this not satisfying? Why am I, you know, um, and and what I discovered over the, the next 12 years was, Okay, let's go back to basics. Let's, let's just go back to when you don't know, you go back to your foundation. Right. And I started to discover in my foundation in how I was in, in, when I looked at my own personal experience as to what was working and what was not working beyond the things I was told, beyond the values that I was given for my culture, right? I noticed that there was, there was increasingly a a difference, a difference. And this difference was, was somewhat stark. So like, for example, I was taught that I had earned this big house, you know, because I went to school and I worked hard and I did all play by the rules. I did all right. Exactly. And, and, and so, but in fact, most of the successes I had was not simply a function of my choices but a function of so many people who, who believed in me, who taught me, who trusted me, who, who, who gave me support when I needed it most. In other words, I had a contribution, but I was, but I was missing the fact that all these other people had supported that contribution. And that's why I was successful. And that in the absence of all that support, I wouldn't have been successful, you know? And so I started to realize that there was a difference between why things work how things work actually and the lens that i was using to interpret what is right what is wrong what is virtuous what is excellence what is how, how what is the measure of me being a good person all those things which were given to me externally by the culture in which i was raised right were at odds with <laughs> with actually what actually works and how i actually function and how i actually live and i and i and i, and I said well what, what what is what describes that scenario? And it and it's the term cognitive dissonance. Hmm. I was, I was, the stress that I was feeling was not because I was busting, busting rocks and working hard at in construction workers. The stress I was feeling was that the that 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 the 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 thoughts of what was true about how I was doing what I was doing was in direct conflict with how what what I was actually doing. That that it, I it, I was I could not feel good about the fact that the very people who help me do what I do, that in the competition of life I have to defeat them. Yeah. I have, to, in other words, I have to defeat them in order for me to be in this big house. I have the big none of the teachers I that taught me have this big house, right? <laughs> you know, none, of, you know, and that's what I mean. And so, and and that started to get me to realize, oh my God. Every day, um, you know, the only the only things that's separating me from the person on the side of the road is I just have more wins and losses. And and when I thought about, well, why do I have all these wins and losses? It wasn't because like I didn't control the fact that I had a mother who was able to provide me quality education. A lot of people don't. (laughs) And what and what happens to them? Right. Right. So it wasn't just on my decision alone. But so to put a bow on it, Dan with, I, I reached a crisis moment where, where, the, where I realized that what I was being the measuring sticks that are given to me externally, did not align with my actual physical, mm-hmm. emotional experience, and that I would not be happy until I lined up how I was living with why I was living, and mm-hmm. and that's and that's what culminated in the book On What It last.
0: Well, then, and, and that's good. A good lead into my next question here because you know why write a book because i i I think you're not the only one to arrive at this conclusion that societal influences you know pushes people toward this sort of realization or I, I would say almost even a breakdown in a sense um but you are one of those rare individuals who took the time to write a book about your discoveries, which I think I'm very grateful for by the way um has this book helped anyone that you're that you're aware of?
1: it certainly has. The realization certainly transformed my life, mm-hmm. and my hope is to extend that. We, we, this, the, the, the lies of independence, freedom, self-interest, and competition, and I call them self-defeating lies, are ripping our society apart. Sure, are ripping our ecology apart. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and and let's be clear, all the powers that be. The billionaire class, whatever they're doing, they're exercising their freedom, they're exercising their self-interest, they're exercising their independence, they're exercising, they're competing, right? They're they're they are practicing those very same virtues that all of us are you know are, are practicing, and this is the result of what we have—the toxicity of our society. So, my hope in writing the book was was to. Appeal to most Americans, to all Americans, who who have come up just like I did, mm-hmm. and and were true believers in the society and the country, and then they found themselves in this place that none of us signed up for. This was this. I don't think there's an American who thinks beyond the the wealthiest of the wealthy that thinks that this is the country that you know, that we would find ourselves in, or this is the world that we would find ourselves in. And so the book is intending to help that person in the same way that I was helped. I I my epiphany was that the truth resides by by taking a sober look in the mirror. Yeah. And starting from ground zero in terms of okay, what is true about what I actually know. And and you can look to your own personal experiences and and you can see the the see the wisdom of truth, which is basically that we don't live independently. We live interdependently. Mm -hmm. right that 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 our success is purely a function of the contributions of enormous numbers of people most of which we will never know and that while we have a role to play in our journey by design we can't do it alone but you know and and this goes all the way down to the anatomic level
0: yeah you know so i
1: have a i have a commentary call as above so below yeah and in this commentary, I, I posit, OK, let's our bodies are literally made of 30 trillion, about 30 trillion cells. And there's about 200 different categories of cells. You know, so let's take a few red blood cell, white blood cell. The red blood cells carry oxygen throughout the body. The white blood cells fight infection. OK, now the, the way the body, the body only exists Because all 200 categories of cells do what they do well, and then the body exists, right? The white blood cells are not competing with the red blood cells, right? It's a symbiotic relationship. If the white blood cells and the red blood cells do their job, both get to live because red blood cells don't survive on their own. Right. (laughs) Okay. And so therefore this is how the body functions. All 200 categories of cells have to function in order for the body to function. This, okay, it's, it's it, how we use our bodies. Walking across the room is the same thing. It, 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 you, you're using multiple parts of your body to do a simple function. And if we do it in coordination, you can walk across the room. But if they're not coordinated, you're gonna stand up and stumble, fall. You're not gonna make it across the room. This is how we survive in our culture, in our, in our economics. Each of us take our specialized skills and we trade it for money. And then we take that money and we use it to buy all the things we do not produce for ourselves, but that we need in order to live our lives, Right? okay? And, and, and that's the same thing about the ecology in which we live. None of us produce the air we breathe, the sunlight that we must have, right? The atmospheric pressure. If we didn't have this atmospheric pressure, I mean, our bodies are designed for the atmospheric pressure here. If we were out in deep space, our bodies would balloon to twice the size, kill us in the process oh, yeah, because there's yeah. pressure inside, right? Okay, so we need the atmospheric pressure, okay? All these things are interdependent. They function interdependently, right? That's how we exist every day. Yet the cultural expectation is, is out of balance. It's yeah. as if the reason for our success is what we do alone. And, and, and because we can think that way, it allowed, look at the geopolitics. Yeah. So I give you one example of the geopolitics of how interdependence is true, but with, with the world lens that we're separate countries and we're competing, you know, think this way. Take, take Russia, take the war in Ukraine, okay? So the United States orchestrates a global ban on Russian oil, natural gas, Trade with Russia or whatever, seizes their assets, their internationally and their, their U.S. dollar reserves, right? Okay, because they they attacked Ukraine, but who did? But okay, and did it hurt Russia? Of course, it hurt Russia, but it hurt everyone else. It it, it was devastating in Europe. It was it, it spiked inflation in the United States. This is the interdependence. Yeah, but when you think, see, it, it's only by thinking that you're independent. And so, what I do to you doesn't harm me. It's it, it's that that mythology of that we are not, we're not connected, you know that what happens to one doesn't affect the other allows us to be cruel. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Absolutely. No, imagine, no. You're, like, you know. And so that's what. And so that's what I learned, and that's what I'm trying to convey to people. Because as soon as they discover that, they will stop. They will recognize that. Well, if I want to do well, I have to think in terms of all those who contribute to how I do well, and they must do well in order for us to do well. Otherwise, we have what we're having right now, which is the most brutal, you know, dehumanizing type of culture, you know, that we're that that any of us has experienced in our lifetimes. It's only getting worse. Yeah. If you'll
0: Just hang on just a second. I don't know if you can hear my stupid cat in the background, he's meowing. He's trying to interrupt this conversation. I think he's getting hungry or something, but I'm going to close the doors and lock him out for just a moment. Just give me like like 30 seconds. I love the
1: human, I love it. Let's go right ahead. Okay, I'll be right back.
0: That is the first time he's actually interrupted one of my podcasts. He's uh, man, I should have I should have given him a big ton of food before I started this podcast. It's <laughs> noon, so it's like his normal feeding time. So,
1: um, you know, it, it is said that cats they're energetic beings, and so they they come to the positive energy, and maybe they maybe you know, your cat was just attracted to the conversation. That's maybe
0: all. yeah, he's uh, well. They normally <laughs> sleep during the day, and then he gets his wild hour. They call it the zoomies. I call it the wild hour. <laughs> Uh, yes. It yes. drives me nuts. I love him to death, but he I mean, drives me nuts. No um, so I, I want to get back to a couple of things here because um, we, we kind of went off in, and talked about a lot of different things about the interdependency of not only the cells in our bodies, but w- which I think is very interesting is I'm actually doing some research for another book I'm writing at this point, And it, it's sort of a science fiction book, but... Um, I, I looked at, you know, what life was like on Earth long, long time ago, like from, you know, Earth is about four billion years old. There's been life on Earth for about three and a half billion years. But a vast majority of that time, it was all single-celled animals. It wasn't until the, uh, what they call the Precambrian explosion took place where all of a sudden multi-celled animals started to take off, right? But up until that point, we had billions of years of everybody being independent and, how can they achieve anything unless they all pull together and start cooperating? And then that's really when evolution starts. And that's when things start to get interesting and, and, and you know, uh, animals and plants become available and, and um, life grows, life prospers at that point. So I, I want to get back, though, too, to, to talk about this cognitive dissonance, because, you know, as we were preparing for this interview, I know we, you and I went back and forth with some email for a while. And you said something I thought was very interesting, which kind of culminates or really crystallizes this whole book in my mind. You said, and I quote, the, th- the central theme of my book is the core virtues defining American culture that is freedom, independence, self-interest, and competition are self-defeating lies that deny our personal fulfillment by causing us to suffer from cognitive, dif- cognitive dissonance. Uh, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. I mean, how does that affect an individual? Because you went into a, a fairly long explanation as to how we're all connected. But it's sort of like the forces of natural competition, call it capitalism, if you will, that gives us this sense of freedom and independence, self-interest, and competition. Um, what is the cognitive dissonance in that? Could you expand on that?
1: Sure. Um, the thing had. <laughs> The thing is, is a part of how we function. And again, you know, I ask anyone who's listening to look at your own personal experience is we know things, our bodies know things before we realize it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, con- consider how you discovered you were in love. Okay. Most people discover that they're in love by they, d- they do something or they feel some way or they are so distracted that they stopped and they said, Oh my God, I, you know, I never did this before, you know, right. I must love her. You know, in other words, we are already, our bodies know the truth before we realize it. So mm-hmm. there is a separation between, you know, there's some significance to Descartes, I think therefore I am in that, you know, yeah, we, there's a separation between how we perceive ourselves and what we are actually experiencing. There is the tension between how you perceive yourself And what you're actually experiencing is self-destructive it 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 creates dis-ease because you know something is wrong you know it's sort of like the hair that goes up in the back of your neck Mm -hmm. and you don't know why yet but you know something is wrong and if you stay in that situation it does manifest physically right that's just that you know you know that we used to characterize it as stress
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right well, why does why does stress cause a stroke? Why does you know it's not because you're sprinting up and down the street? You know, it is the impact of of, of some form of emotional dist- dist- you know, distress, right? Mm-hmm. And so, look look around us, and, and look at the history. If you as you know, if if there is a disquiet in you, if if you're out of balance, and you, and you could tell you know you're not going to function well. Your, your, it's going to affect your mental state. It's going to affect your emotional state, which ultimately affects your physical state. And this is what I literally was experiencing when I was on the way to stroke. I was, I had access to healthcare. I had access to the quality food. I had, I was exercising. You know, you know, how many people we know run marathons and they keel over, and you're like, how did that person keel over? I mean, they seem perfectly healthy. It's, it's, it's the emotional issues Mm -hmm. it's 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 you know that and 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 for me and i think for most americans it is this detachment between how we actually live and how our perception of what is right and wrong about how we live Mm -hmm. and 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 it and it and it does affect health why is it that for the wealthiest country in the world we are we are far less healthy than most societies i mean if covid taught us that i mean you just compare us to 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 the incidence of covid and the deaths and the and the the, um, morbidity rates in germany compared to the united states i mean they are so much healthier than we are why right and i really think it has a lot to do with this cognitive dissonance this this idea that that you know that puts forward our independence first that puts forward our contribution first in the absence of anyone else which then allows us to to compete more severely and when you're competing you can't think about the other side you can't think about the person you're competing with right you you, that's a dehumanizing function right right? it's it's, that's why we don't compete with our wives i mean literally you're at the dinner table okay whoever gets a fruit for, for, you know for, you know can he, no we don't do that the marriage would be very short why well because because competition is harmful competition is wins and losses and we don't want our loved ones to lose but we make everyone else lose yeah every time yeah. we compete and so i'm saying it it is the emotional price we pay that ultimately manifests because we know it's wrong we know this is out of alignment we just don't realize it because what we realize is defined by our virtues, right? Mm-hmm. Independence is a virtue. When, and in fact, all we've made is gluttony. We, our actions have made gluttony a virtue. Right. Because, because in this competition, everyone's trying to take as much as they possibly can, right? Well, if, okay, so think about that as a meal with your family at night, okay? Typically, we make plenty for our family and there's leftovers, But if everyone approached the table which i'm going to take as much as i can right i don't care how much food you make you're not going to make enough food right Right. and this is how we treat the entire globe (laughs) we're all taking as much as we can because if we don't you know we got to save for a rainy day if we if we lose access to resource we got to have something to fall back on and okay and so look look at the distribution of resources in the world the top one percent have more than the bottom 50% of the yeah. world. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, so so all I'm saying is, is that there is an emotional and physical impact. From living a certain way and thinking a different way, and, 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 and it's and that's the essence of what cognitive dissonance is, it, it, it acknowledges that that's not just it's not just a mental issue. It can manifest and does manifest, and usually we just call it stress or some 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 other sort of dysfunction. Maybe, maybe this is what autoimmune. This maybe autoimmune mm-hmm. diseases are a function of this type of thing.
0: No. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say two words here, and I'm going to I want to, and I'll expand on it a little bit more significantly. Actually, the two words are Ayn Rand. <laughs> she was a Russian <laughs> uh, a Russian American writer and philosopher. And she's known for developing this philosophical system called objectivism. Uh, she advocated for rational self-interest, individualism, laissez-faire capitalism, arguing that the pursuit of one's own happiness, one's own happiness and interests, <clears throat> is a, is the highest moral purpose of life. And she suggested that altruism should not be a moral obligation or even a primary focus of your life. And so I'm I'm reading your book, and it's presenting a compelling argument about the inherent interdependence of humans, as, as I believe opposed to what Ayn, Ayn Rand would say, interdependence of humans, both in terms of our daily survival and our broader societal structures. And you challenge the core virtues, often celebrated, as we talked about before, uh, freedom, independence, self-interest, competition, suggesting that they are, in fact, self-defeating and lead to cognitive dissonance, as we talked about. Um so this stands in, in I think, and I, get you, I want to get your perspective on this, but it seems to stand in stark contrast to Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which places a strong emphasis on individualism and rational self-interest. I'm not sure how she thought about uh, competition, uh, but she argued that pursuing your own happiness and interest is not only morally permissible, but is the ultimate moral purpose. So... How do you reconcile these seemingly different opposing views? Do you have any common ground between your perspective uh, on interdependence and Ayn Rand's advocacy for independence? Or do you believe these philosophies are fundamentally irreconcilable?
1: Oh, they are definitely fundamentally irreconcilable because one is about an argument you can make. One is a normative exercise. How should things be? Mm-hmm. You know, To me, Ayn Rand is the logical extreme. Of the age of reason Mm -hmm. i think therefore i am so i come up with a theory and and i can make it as brilliant as i want to make it does it have any relation to how how reality actually works not necessarily but it definitely sounds good so i'm going to put that on one aspect okay so this is this is ayn rand saying this is how it should be Mm -hmm. because she never says this is how it is Mm -hmm. she doesn't make the argument this is how it is i'm not Onward at last is not a new philosophy. Onward at last is not a normative exercise. It's not about how things should be. Mm-hmm. It literally is about how things are. How do you live? How do you survive? How does your body function? If any of that functions independently, I mean, then, 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 I, then I'm wrong. Right, I'm not right. asking anyone to trust me or believe me. I'm saying look in your own life, mm-hmm. right? And, and d- look at the last... Good day. How about this? Look at the last day you had. If it wasn't a good day, let's look at why it wasn't a good day. Because someone that you rely on, whether it's you who made a bad choice or someone else who made a bad choice, messed up your day, right? No. This is how we exist. Cut we off your don't internet exist access in- or
0: whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's all I'm saying. It's just so, so the difference, the, the, these are irreconcilable only because Ayn ran is. Positing a theory that is not attached to the reality of how she lived or how we live. I'm saying just just look in the mirror. the tr- The truth relo- the truth resides in the per- in the sober look in the mirror and understanding who you are, how you live, what works for you, how you function. Right? I'm not saying, you know this it. it the interdependence and this notion of oneness doesn't make the individual disappear. It's not like we. I'm not trying to take us back to the dark ages where individualism doesn't matter. Is that there's a balance between our individual sovereignty. We all make choices, right? And the fact that we function in 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 a symbiotic relationship, right? It, you know that we we that we are not in any way isolated, separate. You know, and that to the extent that we act isolated and separate, we create ecological, emotional dysfunction, which is why the human race is is is, is acting like a cancer cell on the ecology that sustains all of us in the climate crisis, right? It, I mean, we are destroying the ecology that sust- that sustained modern civilization for the last ten thousand years, right? <laughs> you know, and and okay, so this is the difference between these two points of view. I'm, you know, I'm just asking you, don't believe anyone, but look into your personal experiences, look at the this, this steep wisdom of how you actually exist and how you actually function and align with that, right? And if you find that you need the rest of us in order to function, now, when you think about policies, when you think about solutions, it's no longer, how is this gonna affect me? Because that's what it is today. It's, it, you know, which is why we can't solve anything, right? It, it, it all of a sudden becomes, oh, how can, how can we solve this for us? Because I need all of us to, to function, right? You know, I wish I could have that conversation with Iron Man. Because it, again, it's not right or wrong. I would just challenge her to say, well, I don't understand. You didn't even create the language in which you speak. Right. <laughs> he, that, that, that language is created by generations and generations and generations of other humans. I doubt Ayn Rand has even created one word. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, how could she? In what way is she independent? <laughs> you, yeah. know, you know, so, you know, that's, that's, that's my response.
0: <laughs> and it's kind of scary, you know, that, that, that type of thinking, that sort of extreme thinking there where, you know, you, the, the emphasis is on the individual. And I get that. I mean, we are individuals. We are individual expressions of, of the whole, you know, like perhaps like a drop of water in the ocean sort of thing is still a drop of water, even though it's part of the ocean. Right. So it kind of has a dual function there. It's, it's kind of scary, though, because, you know, Alan Greenspan, who was the chairman of the uh, Federal Reserve, I believe it was from the late 80s, 87 or something like that, all the way up to like 2006. Um, yeah. He was a member of Ayn Rand's inner circle. You know, and she had a whole lot of influence on him um, and on his policies, not all of his policies. But it was it was interesting to me that, you know, that sort of that I can't help thinking that that sort of mindset permeated throughout Alan Greenspan's decisions as the chairman of the Federal Reserve during all those years and um, further uh, perpetuated this this objectivism sort of mindset. Throughout, oh, it did,
1: and 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 we and and I invite everyone who's watching this or listening to this podcast to to go into your Google and put Alan Greenspan um, and just the phrase any paraphrase of the version um, the assumptions on which I based my entire career have proven to be untrue because he had to admit that in in you know under congressional testimony, right? Every, you know, oh, so yeah, yeah. I, I he, that's absolutely true right that he was guided by Ayn rand but i mean but see this is this is this is the imbalance of the age of reason we think we're so smart that we can out we can we can create we can create a reality that's that you know like objectivism right mm-hmm. the financial crash that led into the 2008 financial crash the seed of toxicity was Wall Street had designed a mortgage-backed security, and in this mortgage-backed security collateral debt obligation, there's multiple versions, right? They took different tranches of risk. So let's speak in terms of c- consumer credit scores, because everyone understands. So imagine a hundred mortgages, but you had so you had so many. You had 20 mortgages with a 600 credit score. 20 mortgages. With a 650 credit score, 20 mortgages with a 700 credit score, 20 mortgages with a 750, and then up to, uh, then, then, and 20 mortgages with an 800 credit score. Okay. And you put them in a bundle. They, they used theoretical mathematics. Mm-hmm. See, this is the age of reason for you theoretical mathematics to say, okay, if we, took, if we take this bundle of 100 mortgages, each with, a, each with different tranches of credit rating, and we took a weighting of so much of the 800 credit score, 750, 700, 650, and 600, right? Is, can, you, can you come up with a weighting that that one security based on the weighting would, would produce a risk equal to the 800 credit score, Yeah. right? This is what they created. And yes, with theoretical mathematics, you can do that. Right? Right. So they created this algorithm and and believe me, the lawyers. It took a stack of papers all the way up to the to your know, ten foot, twelve foot ceiling, you know, to to describe this. You know, this is what they showed up at the rating agencies. Yeah, you know, here, here's a new security that we think should be rated AAA, right? And 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 the rating agency said, oh, okay, okay. So <laughs> Fitch is looking at, you know, they're saying, okay, S and P is going to say what, you know, Moody's. What are they going? So they all said, well, we can't figure it out. But this is Goldman Sachs, so of course they, they must know. So they 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 stamp it AAA. But this is what I'm saying. This is the, this is the limit of the age of reason. So you you yeah you use theoretical mathematics, but it had no relation to reality. Yeah. Alan Greenspan uses objectivism, but has no relation to reality. Right. Yeah. And and look at the catastrophe. Because reality is reality. The cat. You know, that, that's what's happening in climate. Reality will take over. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, 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 and so it did. And we had a financial crash based on misrating risk. <laughs> OK, yeah. but, you know, because they, they claimed 800 credit score. So, I mean, and proof of the pudding is in 2008, in the spring of 2008, the, all these securities that were ultimately considered toxic assets by the fall we still triple-A rated, double-A rated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. you know, so that's what I'm saying. So you, we, have to, we have to get back to balance. We have to tether our thoughts, our lens on how we interpret things to reality. And all I'm asking in Onward at Last is that the way you do that is to know thyself. Now we're going back to Greek philosophy now. Know thyself. If you understand how you function, now you have an understanding of truth. That's how things work, <laughs> okay? And how you function, how I function. But what anyone happen to tell us is, I rely heavily on so many people that I will never know. And that defines how I look at the stranger. But what does our culture teach us? Our culture says stranger danger. Yeah. But the stranger is the person who just, you know, harvested my food or, or fixed my brakes. or or or, or went out there in the rain and some terrible weather condition and got the power lines to work. So I have heat in my house. Right. So how should I treat that stranger? Right. Well, my experience tells me since I don't do any of those things myself, is that I need to be that, that that probably is one of these people who's contributing to my well-being, and therefore how should I treat them? Yeah. Certainly not as a,
0: not as a enemy or someone to compete
1: with. Right. That's yeah. exactly that's all I'm saying. But but these virtues encourage us to do that, because, of course, what happens to them doesn't affect us. Let's go back to COVID for a second. OK, so in April of 2020, we had to shut down. We shut we had to we had to shelter in place. Right. We literally shut down 80 percent of the economy to shelter in place. But who couldn't shelter in place? The essential workers. And one of the things, what did we learn about the essential workers? They're some of the lowest paid workers in Absolutely, our society.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah all, all, all yeah. those banker types and stuff like myself or whatever, you know, I could do this with the double screens all day. Of course, I, I wouldn't survive a day without the essential workers, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, and we are defeating the, the essential workers in in, in in the competition for resources to take care of ourselves and our family. We are defeating the very people we have to have, whether it's law enforcement, first responders, you know, the the trucks moving the food, you know, the people, you know, harvesting. I mean, none of us do that, (laughs) you know? I mean, so all I'm saying here is this is why we have to get back to reality. What is, how do we actually function? Align our choices with that. And the, the joy of doing that is all of a sudden you the dissidence clears, the underlying disquiet intention of living a lie clears, and you start to find your sense of purpose, which ultimately leads to personal fulfillment, and that's what I found. But I'm not alone, and 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 the thing is, I can't. It that's not for me because again, what I found is is it's not just about me. I have to project that to as many people as possible that. That this is for all of us. This is who we actually are. And that's what I'm trying to communicate in all at last, that 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 we can pull back from this us versus them. As soon as we realize there is no them. Yeah, there's only us.
0: But that you you got into a, a topic here I wanted to discuss a little bit more. You know, you, you talked about theoretical mathematics, and I, I think that applies to a lot of the tax cuts that people want to do all the time, that their are politicians, which inevitably, you know, benefits the, uh, the upper class. And, you know, they say, well, don't worry about it. It'll trickle down to the lower classes, and it never does. And the, you know— it's got to be this cognitive dissonance like on steroids with people who have a lot of money that that, that are running these shows but i want to get i want to get something else too you talked about these um about the 2008 financial crisis and, and i see this as a threat to our democracy to the to the extent that um this sense of individualistic thinking has um has driven a schism in our nation and um And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you and I are working on this project together. It's called The Clean New Deal. Uh, It's being led by Patrick Lovell. He's the one that uh, produced the con, the the www.con.tv. We had him on our our, uh, podcast last week. Um, I'm not sure yet what the mission statement is for this new organization. It's still quite new. But it does focus on the reduction, if not the complete eradication, of corruption in our government, as well as high-ranking industrial leaders. Um, so anyone's interested, by the way, in, in, in knowing a little bit more about this should listen to our last week's podcast with Patrick, Lovell called the con. Um, but I want to tie this into your book somehow, because particularly the element of corruption, which is a necessary, it's, um, I'm not corruption. I mean, competition, which is really a necessary part a necessary component of capitalism. But this competition works against us, as you said, it's driven many people to compete and win by any means necessary, even if it means doing things like overpricing insulin, resulting in the death for those who cannot afford it. Um, and I also believe it infiltrates our education system, where competition for the public dollars that are going into our public schools uh, leads to campaigns designed to defund our public schools and use those vouchers, put everything in the vouchers, and shift those public dollars into private schools. Um and as far as the Clean New Deal is concerned, there's a motivation to, we have a motivation to expose this corruption in, um, in, in, our, in our system, uh, corruption that was built on these celebrated virtues of American culture. Um, so I want to dive into this a little bit more because you, know, you and I are working on a common project in this area. How do you yeah. plan to use your talents, that is your, your intimate knowledge? of the banking system and everything else you've learned over your whole life to help expose this corruption and at the same time waking up people to this cognitive dissonance that we discussed?
1: Yeah. Because I find of, from my own personal experience that the problem was not what was these virtues that I was defining myself. As soon as, as, soon as I understood that, I turned back to how I functioned. Right. All of a sudden, the lens by which I see the world became profoundly different. Right. And, 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 and that's my challenge to everyone. It, if you if you see yourself as a part of one whole human family, because that's exactly how you live. Right. And how you function. Right. And then that becomes your lens. In other words, there's no them. This is us. Right. You. Yes, it will I, identify bad actors lots of bad actors, those bad actors are acting based on those virtues. Let's, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. They're competing by any means necessary. They, they are acting independent of any consideration for you or I. That's how they do what they do. Right? Right. They, right. I mean, and, and so so How understanding that the, 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 what these virtues do to us and and let me be clear about, there's nothing absolutely wrong about freedom. There's nothing absolutely wrong about competition or these things. It is the pushing of these things to the logical extreme, which is never logical. So imagine the RPMs on your car, right? The engineering of the car is so that the car will function as designed, when it's at 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, when you start getting 6,000, 7,000, you get the red section. And all of a sudden, the engineers are saying, you know, in this section right here, uh, all bets are off. It's, it's going to start not functioning the way it was designed. Well, this is what we've done to freedom. That's all I'm saying. This is what we've done to competition. Yes, there is, there is an appropriate time and place for competition. But making it a blood sport is not it. Mm-hmm. De- defining how you distribute your your resources in your across your society, you know, to the point where people are dying because they don't have access. When people have so much over here that they can't even use it all, that is that's the kind of stuff that destroys a society. That's that's we are deep in the red of these virtues to where they're not functioning the way they they were they would if if we restored some sense of balance, which is the idea that exercising my free choice as a sovereign individual and have full consideration for how it's going to affect you. Okay. And, and why should I have full consideration for how it's going to affect you? Because how it affects you affects me too. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I'm still exercising my freedom. Okay. That's, that's much more in balance. Now we're at 3,000, 4,000 RPM. So we're doing good, you know, you know, but if I don't care if I, if it's COVID and, and I, I don't have comorbidities, so I'm not going to wear a mask. Right. Oh, OK. So it, it, I care nothing about anyone around me. But that is an exercise of freedom that is just deep in the red and that's self-defeating. So that, so then, you know, COVID becomes endemic, which is what we have now. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the what the con demonstrates is capitalism at its extreme. You know, You know, we are way afield from what Adam Smith was talking about, right? The the, the, the notion of individual self-interest, greed, having positive macroeconomic impact because it raises the productivity of the society, which benefits everyone, has a limit. Everything has limits. You know, if we're talking about oxygen, too much oxygen gives you the bends of the right. oxygen you asphyxiate, right? Everything has limits. Okay, so capitalism has limits. And when you get to a point in your capitalism where the individual self-interest is so costly that, that, that the macroeconomic effect is catastrophic, right? That is where we are, mm-hmm. you know? That, that is, that, and, and what the con demonstrates is here is Wall Street designing, using, you know, Uh, again, theoretical mathematics, to get the rating agencies to rate mortgage-backed securities AAA so that they can sell them to restricted institutional investors. Who are they? Life insurance, pensions. Right. Okay. (laughs) Which is the kind exposes, right? Okay. This is Wall Street saying we have not been able to access trillions of dollars of investment money because the law protects those people. They only can say, invest in the safest investments. So, what does Wall Street do? Cook the, the rating right. agencies. And, what's and, safer and, than and,
0: mortgage-backed and, securities, right?
1: What's the most, right? They're triple A rated. They're rated the same thing as the U.S. Treasury, which is crazy, right? right? But that's what they were, and it allowed all of a sudden, Calpers. It, it, all of a sudden, Freddie Mac. Freddie Mac. Fannie Mae, by the way, the conforming mortgage market wasn't in that game. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was that the GSEs lobbied the Congress to get permission to be able to invest their resources in mortgage-backed securities because Wall Street was making a fortune in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004. It was by 2006 that Congress gave the GSEs the ability to invest the conforming mortgage market wasn't speculating uh, on liar loans. It was already poisoned
0: right? by that time, wasn't it? It was
1: already poisoned, and yeah. so they came in late. And Fannie and Freddie was the, the 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 theoretical dumb money who came in trillions of dollars right before everything fell apart, which caused them to fall apart. Oh right? well, yeah, you yeah. know. So 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 yeah. yeah. So where my book aligns with the con is is it is it helps to it it shows that these virtues drive that because all those actors are advancing their own self-interest yeah. at the expense of everyone else. They are advancing, their they're exercising their freedom. Right. You know, they, you know, they, 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 I mean, they're, they're living, they're competing. Right. Look what happened. Look what happened between Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs number one historical competitor is Lehman brothers. Lehman brothers was, was a brilliant, you know, investment bank. Same storied history as, as Goldman Sachs. But Lehman Brothers wound up bankrupt. Yeah. Why? And Goldman Sachs didn't. Because Lehman didn't, uh, didn't know. They, just, they, they, they absolutely did not purchase. They did not purchase the um, credit default swaps. A credit default swap. And I know this is a little bit in the weeds. But a credit default swap. Is an unregulated insurance policy that allows the holder of the swap to bet on the failure of anything, mm-hmm. even if they don't have an interest in it. How about that? That's why wow. this, this, this used to be illegal. Yeah. So yeah. thank, thank Bill, thank Bill Clinton, and you know, for for making this kind of nonsense legal again. But the fact is, it's so. What happened is Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank and a few others purchased face value, billions of dollars worth of credit default swaps from AIG against the securities that they knew ultimately would go bad. So they, they it knew was it was inside BS. Yeah. That's yeah. right. The difference between Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs is that Lehman Brothers didn't know, so they didn't buy the credit default swaps. I mean, literally, Goldman paid millions of dollars in premiums. For, for, and, and guess what? That is what caused AIG to fail. And yet the American public actually understood the gig. So after Obama took office in in, in 2009, January 2009, you had people petitioning out in front of AIG asking Obama to not pay 100 cents on the dollar for those insurance payments, Mm -hmm. right? Because the American taxpayer bailed out AIG $180 billion. And Obama said, oh, I can't. I have to. His contracts. Nonsense. The pensioners. Got got shredded with with pensions that you're know, like fifty five percent loss in their pensions and stuff and like that. People lost but, their but, money, but Wall yeah. Street—they lost their money. But Wall Street? Oh hell no, no, no. He paid a hundred percent, and guess what? Twenty billion dollars went to Goldman Sachs in two thousand and nine, and 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 then they paid out the highest bonuses to their people in their history.
0: I remember that. wow yeah, they're paying bonuses,
1: while, well, yeah. I mean, it just, just yeah. okay. So what this is all freedom, independence, self-interest and competition buried deep in the red. We're going, we're, we're going to destroy everyone else for our benefit. Yeah. Right. You know, we're, you know we're, we, we brought down the global economy and Goldman Sachs made out like a pig. <laughs> right? yeah. Okay, that is not what Adam Smith did. If, if for those who are truly capitalists, don't criticize people who hate capitalism, criticize the people who destroyed capitalism, which was the capitalists themselves at the top of that food chain over there. And and so I think where I'm gonna support the clean new deal is is that I'm gonna help each of us as individuals, the individual, because this stuff is, is so big, what can I do? You can stop participating. You can reclaim your sovereignty by aligning your life and the choices you make. With how you actually live, and then yes, we'll go about the process of holding whomever accountable. But in order to hold these people accountable, we got to regain a foothold in our government. We got to reclaim our government back, yeah. right? Two thousand twenty-four is the presidency. The American public wants and wants someone outside of these p- political parties. Yeah, they, they, they look at the detail of the polling data. The show. And so we have to give them a choice that, is, that, that will advocate on behalf of the Clean New Deal to restore pe- government of the people, for the people, by the people, right? On the basis of the fact that we are one family. Yeah. We live and thrive interdependently. So this is not a normative thing. This is not because you should. This is how you actually survive. So yeah. what comes natural is you will you will do what you need to do to, 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 okay, this is the most natural thing. So that's how I feel. I feel like I give a basis for people to connect to why we must do this. Because this is, we're talking about power and, and, a, and, a, and a shift of power back to the people in a relatively short period, period of time. This, this is, I mean, Bernie Sanders used to talk about, you know, you, you want to hear some radical. Well, this is radical, but, it's, but it will resonate with the individuals out there. And, and on that basis, because it will be authentic, people will be willing to sacrifice. They'll be willing to do whatever it takes because they know it's true. They don't have to trust anyone.
0: You, tied, you did a very good job of tying the, the, uh, the elements of your book into this movement, because I think that um, I think you're right. We we do as a society do we do lose sight of the individual contributor and and the interdependentness among all of us to make this system work. And I I would say that, you know, one thing I had an expression I used a few years ago, I haven't used it for a while, but I said, uh, without restraint, capitalism will eat democracy. In other words, uh, you know there has to be some realization of the of the principles that you bring out in your book. There, that we're all part of the same. It's not us and them. We're all part of the same, and as such, um, we have to start acting like it. Because I think that I think you're right in terms of if you want to use the 2008 financial crisis as an example, and, and ongoing financial crises that I think are coming up very shortly. Oh yeah, um, you know the these I think what ultimately the people who are pulling the strings behind this don't realize that reality is going to catch up with they with themselves uh, you know it's it's i'm not saying it's going to be like another bastille day or something like that but if the system falls apart um, it's going to take them with it there's this group called patriotic millionaires it's uh, i i i met one of the guys that worked that uh, was one of the founders of that organization i forgot uh, pearlman no richard pearl or something like that i don't know but um, I interviewed him on a different podcast years ago, and he said that right out. He said, you know, he says, yeah, I'm a millionaire. I enjoy my life. I'm in New York, New York here. I'm living in one of the big penthouses here. He says, I have a good family and everything else. But he says, you know, if this economic system falls apart, it's going to take me with it. And he says, I might be one of the first ones to suffer from this thing. So the idea of patriotic millionaires was to try to lobby government to say, look, we don't need these tax cuts We need society to function as a collective of interdependent people. So I I liked his message there. And I I apologize. I can't remember what his name was anymore. Something with the word Pearl in it, I think. Um, And again, the organization was called Patriotic Millionaires. I haven't uh, looked them up for a while, so I don't even know if they're around anymore. I hope they are, though. Um, But I think there's a realization, even among the rich class, that this is the situation. So... um, Anyways, we're running up in an hour here, and my cat is just driving me nuts here. He's, I don't know if you can hear him on your end, but he is just howling. I can hear him I can hear him through my headphones here that's being picked up by the microphone in front of me. I'm like, oh, my gosh. People are going to be, you know, if they're going to listen to this podcast, they're going to think, hey, where's my cat? Why is he screaming at me? Um, he's knocking over stuff in the room. He's really upset with me. So i better to go out and feed him pretty soon. But uh, let's wrap it up at this point. Um where can people find your book onward at last
1: they can find it um certainly it's on amazon it's it's on barnes and nobles website it's on target's website they can go to their local bookstore and ask them to order it you know because it, it it's been distributed by ingram um it's also available in um Uh, Well, first and foremost, they can go to the website, www.onwardatlast.com. There are links to all the various uh, sites that they can get it, you know, if they want to get it. But also, again, this is about getting the message out. This wasn't a money-making operation. So right there on the website, if you go to the blog tab, all the the, uh, um, commentaries are available for free. But if you like it in the, you can get the if you wanna buy the book, you can get it in hardcover, you can get it in paperback, you can get it in an audiobook. Uh and the narrator is a wonderful actress out from California named Carolyn Jania. She's a comedian, she's she's great. And um and you can also get it in ebook in, in, in you know in an ebook version, which is what you did, Dan. So so that's that's the ways you can get it. Um and, uh, and I really, really want to thank you, Dan, for this opportunity to talk about these issues. Um, and I look forward to working with you in the future and, and really becoming true advocates, national advocates for the Clean New Deal. Uh, it's time. We, it, our, our moment is here.
0: Our moment is here, I agree, I agree. We've been talking with Kevin Howard, Army veteran, banker, lifelong learner, and author of the book, Onward at Last. Kevin, thank you very much for stopping by and chatting with us today.
1: You are very welcome. It was a pleasure. You all take care.
0: You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Each episode, we feature guests and topics that'll help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or check out our Substack site at democracyonthemove.org and leave a comment on this episode's page. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and would like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again to our next episode.